Hello and welcome to this Cambridge Bright Club Highlights podcast from Frontiers with me, Ginny Smith. Coming up, a poem about vasectomies and a quiz to find out which temporarily disabled 19th century literature heroine you are. But first, Anka Timmerman tells us about her life as a serial postdoc researching the history of alchemy. Hi everyone, um, I'm a historian of alchemy and this is actually my first time doing Bright Club, so you can tell that I'm nervous from the fact that I tried this on my desk lamp and it didn't laugh. <laughs> but it actually found it quite enlightening. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I am German, so I'm incredibly prepared. I actually, no, actually I am. Um, I went out and bought a special product. It's called Nivea Stress Protect deodorant. Um, don't know if you can tell, but it's actually quite rubbish. It does not protect from stress. So don't go and buy it. Um, talking about things that don't work, let's talk a little bit about alchemy. Alchemy, how was that supposed to work? Well, alchemists thought that um, metals grow in the earth and they all start out as the cute little, very imperfect baby metal, lead. Lead is very common. Lead is very impure, that's how they start out. And then a few thousand years go by and they all miraculously turn into tin. And then a few thousand years go by and the tin miraculously turns into copper, etc., until it becomes perfect gold. Now, if you isolate that bit which perfects the metals, the philosopher's stone, and you project that onto other metals, you can accelerate that process. So far, so good. There is something we can learn from that because humans work in the complete opposite way than metals. Humans are born as these cute little perfect babies <laughs> and then a few years go by and um, they turn out to be something like this. <laughs> so you make the liquid equivalent of the Philosopher's Stone, the elixir of life, and you take that and you become all perfect again. So that was the idea of it all. Um, now you're wondering, how does that work? You know, how do you do it? I'll actually tell you. So if you want to take notes, I assume you were prepared, you know, coming here. Um, this is the recipe, right? You take a little piece of lead, just one, and then you take a particle accelerator. <laughs> it has been done. It, it can actually be done. It's been done at CERN, so transmuting lead into gold is possible but I suppose you won't be going home doing that tonight. Um, I look at how alchemists looked at recipes and um, I struggle with the same problems they did. I'm sitting in front of the manuscripts and looking at them and uh, trying to figure out what went on there. So it's a little bit like learning how to cook from a cookbook without anyone showing you what you're doing or actually just going about cooking, and if you know my flatmates, anyone around? No? You could actually come around and observe them do it, and you'll realize how difficult that actually is. Um, the other reason why it's difficult to research alchemy is because the recipes are written in a very metaphorical way. So they won't actually say, take lead and then take some corrosive substance and put it on the metal, and then you'll get something. It will say something like, take the king and apply the queen. Put them into a bedchamber and they shall bear a child. 
<laughs> which the king then ingests <laughs> in order to bring forth a bird. Um, they do actually read something like that. I'm always a little bit disappointed when I get to the end because no one ever gets to live happily ever after. Um, but that is the second problem. Um, now I actually have to look at my notes. I am a historian, I'm prepared. <laughs> yes, people who worked on alchemy. Actually, if I talk about alchemists, that's very ironic because um, there weren't people who made a living doing alchemy for a long, long time. There were actually clerics, scholars, doctors, um, anyone who had access to the materials, who was interested in prolonging life and transmuting metals, and they all had different motivations for explaining why it didn't work. So um, a cleric, for example, who had been pottering around in his lab trying to make the Philosopher's Stone and got something that looked a bit like shit, really, um, <laughs> would look at it and go, yep, I know, God just doesn't want me to have the secret. Whereas a scholar, pretty much like myself, will look at the manuscripts and go, oh yeah, messy handwriting, pretty much like my own, couldn't read that, I'll just go back and try again. Whereas doctors would probably write into their diaries, tried the bit with the king and the queen, got the lady pregnant, I think I'm doing something wrong about the child. <laughs> but they and I have pointers, literally, and manuscripts, which help them identify the important bits while they're deciphering all these things, and they're called manicules. And you'll all know those from Facebook. The poke button has changed recently, right? They look like that. And you will find those in the text, um, and they can be incredibly useful. So there's, there's an entire page full of text, and you can't read it, and you just go, where's the important bit? Where's what I want to know? And it's, there it is. <laughs> so. Um, I was reading along the other day, and I stumbled across a bit involving a hermaphrodite, and it just went um, But that's actually where the helpfulness stopped. The main reason why I like working on alchemy is because there are so many parallels between alchemists and myself. So um, alchemists who actually wanted to make a living doing alchemy would look for a patron, and they would write these long poems basically saying, I can make gold, I can make you immortal, just give me money, give me money, and I'll do it. I have a confession to make. I am a serial postdoc. So I write all these funding applications going, if you just give me the money, I can produce brilliant research. And um, it sort of works, you know, I'm here. Um, I had a Gates scholarship while I was doing my PhD. They literally asked us in the interview how we were going to save the world with our research. So actually, it's me, right? Not you. It's me. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, for alchemists, it could go wrong. So you know, you, you get all that money in, you do your, your bit. You don't actually produce the Philosopher's Stone. You have to flee the country. So I just wanted to say at this stage, I'm here until July. You know, <laughs> if, if anyone's interested, approach me afterwards, there won't be any childbearing involved, I can promise you. <laughs> Hang on a minute, I, th I think I'm doing this wrong, aren't I? <laughs> anyway, I w I've moved around a lot, I've lived in five countries in the past five years, and I'll tell you a little bit about my experiences in Vienna. Any Austrian people in the room? Good, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
Now, this actually helps because I wasn't prepared. I thought the most difficult bit would be getting into the library and looking at manuscripts, but actually getting to the library already proved a challenge. Mm -hmm. I was on a tram, and you know, you can just picture the scene. I'm in a streetcar, wooden seats, the Von Trapp family sitting right behind me, <laughs> um, horse carts going by. And um, I was just getting up to leave, and I saw one of the little girls leaning over to her mother and whispering something into her ear. And her mother, I mean, two things people hadn't warned me about when I moved to Vienna. They hate Germans, and they don't have any filter of, about what to say in public. <laughs> so the mother turned over to her child and said very loudly, no, no, that is a woman. She's just freakishly tall. <laughs> At that point, I turned on my heel, and I was wearing heels, and said to the man, if you eat your greens, you'll grow to be as tall as I am. And the mother turned to her children and went, shit, she's German. <laughs> We're leaving now. So I actually had to stay on the tram because you know, I didn't want the awkwardness of getting off at the same stop and them thinking I'm following them around. Some news travels very slowly in Austria, right? Um, but um, eventually I got off, I got to the library, I went in, tweedy sort of librarian, we all know those, right? Sitting behind the counter, glasses, socks, sandals. Um, <laughs> and I went there and produced absolutely every piece of information they had asked me for. Name, birth date, height, they got a bit freaked out by that too. Um, my vaccination history, um, my police records, of which there are none, but they actually wanted proof of that, my PhD certificate and a letter from my mother saying I'm actually a really nice person, so can I please see manuscripts. Um, <laughs> I dictated that to her, but it was actually perfect. Um, and uh, yet they, they were very reluctant. They sent me away again. I had to come back. It all turned very Kafkaesque. But finally, I made it through the door, they gave me a manuscript, I sat down with a sigh of relief, I opened it up, and I was reminded of how so many generations of people have looked at these manuscripts before. I mean, you can picture the scene, little monks sitting there, just writing away, trying to understand these alchemical recipes. And I was reminded, I brought you again, prepared German historian, um, a bit of advice from a 14th century person on how to treat books. His name is Richard de Berry. He wrote the book called Philo Biblon, The Love of Books. And he says the following about readers. The race of scholars is commonly badly brought up. You may happen to see some headstrong youth lazily lounging over his studies. And when the winter's frost is sharp, his nose, running from the nipping cold, drips down, nor does he think of wiping it with his pocket handkerchief until he has bedewed the book before him with the ugly moisture. <laughs> True this, actually. Um, his nails are stuffed with filth, which he, with which he marks the passage that pleases him. He does not fear to eat fruit or cheese over an open book, <laughs> or carelessly to carry a cup to and from his mouth. Continually chattering, he is never weary of disputing with his companions, and while he alleges a crowd of senseless arguments, sounds familiar, he wets the book lying half open in his lap with sputtering showers. 
So I was thinking about all those generations of people looking at these manuscripts before, and then I heard a, uh, a sound behind me. It was someone reading a manuscript, licking his finger and turning the page. <laughs> I thought, you know, you do, really don't want to do that. But um, that actually brings us back to alchemy, because there is a school of thought in um, historians of alchemy who look at stains on manuscripts because they think you can tell whether they were used in a laboratory. So um, after reading that, whenever someone proclaims that there are chemical stains in a manuscript, I do have to wonder. <laughs> um, at the moment, I'm working on images in alchemy, and um, I'm particularly looking at the differences between German and English alchemical manuscripts. And again, you have to look between the lines, you have to look for very little clues, and that's the nugget I found last week. I'll leave you with that. You can go home and ponder it, you can steal my research, feel free to. Um, so sometimes you don't know who actually annotated a manuscript. It could be a German, it could be an English person. Books went back and forth, you know, people traveled. So I thought, how do I know if it's an image? You know, it's not a language. I can't identify any words in English or German with it. How do I know? And then the other day, I had this manuscript in Latin in front of me, and there was a little marginal note. And it said, written at 6 AM. And below it was a tiny drawing of a bath towel. So that was a German one. Thank you. <laughs> I wanted to know more about what exactly alchemy was, so I caught up with Anka to find out. Well, it's both a search for gold and the attempt to perfect things. So the idea was that all the metals grow in the earth, and they all start out as lead, so lead is like the baby metal. And over the centuries, every metal grows into another, yet into yet another, and eventually they all become gold. So the idea was that you could accelerate that process, which, once you buy into the theory, makes a lot of sense, really. And the idea was too good to give up. The same goes for the elixir of life, which is the liquid form of the Philosopher's Stone, which transforms metals. People are generally born sort of perfect, and then we all get corrupted. So the elixir of life could remove imperfections from the human body also and make us not immortal, but very, very old. So there was this quest for perfecting nature, understanding how things work in nature, and yes, just making life better generally, both on a monetary side and in, with regard to health. So where did these ideas come from? I mean... It sounds kind of crazy to our modern ears to think that a metal would grow and age and develop into a different metal. Where mm. did that idea come from? Well, alchemy in general has a very long history. So people started experimenting with making things look like gold in ancient Egypt. Alchemy reached the Western world through Spain and actually traveled all across Europe and was practiced from the 12th century well into the 18th century. Newton is one of those people that we know about who engaged with alchemy, even though there were already new ideas about natural philosophy, the science of the time, coming about, in part thanks to him. But actually, there were a lot of people who dabbled in alchemy or were actually engaging with it who were not alchemists per se. So medical doctors, metal workers, clerics, anyone who basically had access to the manuscripts and or to the materials that you need for alchemy really got into the idea of trying to figure out how you can understand nature to that perfection. And how 
did these people go about trying to turn a metal into another? Were there any sort of standard ways of doing it? There were certain recipes which go through different cycles. So you take one or several substances and you put them together and just subject them to certain reactions that could be made by fire or by putting them into a corrosive substance or just letting them react with each other. The interesting thing about that is all the recipes are written in a very metaphorical way. You know, if you're thinking that's all very complicated and why did people express it that way and is that actually real science? All I can say is if you look at chemical formulas nowadays, have you seen a hexagon lately by looking at something really, really closely, you know? It was part of the terminology Part of the appeal was that there was that challenge of deciphering something. And when the experiment went wrong, and it often did, there were several factors why that might have happened. The idea was really too good to give up. That idea that you can understand nature to that point that you can actually do something like turn lead into gold. It seems amazing that after people had tried all these different recipes that they still clung on to the idea. How long did it actually take for people to realise that it wasn't going to work? One of the very crappy analogies I use when people ask me that question is that we're still looking for cures for all sorts of different medical complaints, cancers, etc. We do not know whether we'll actually get there, I think. Scientists might argue with that, but the idea that we may prolong people's lives that way and spare them suffering is just too good to give up on the research. So how do you actually go about studying something like this that happened so long ago and the manuscript sounds so complicated? Mm -hmm. How do you find out new things about what happened back then? The recipes were all copied by hand, so what I'm particularly interested in is tracing different copies of the same text and then comparing the kinds of changes that were made and errors that were introduced because that's when you can see the person who held the pen who wrote that. The funniest things or the most interesting ones are actually annotations. So you will get those descriptions saying, leave it for three weeks and it will turn into a bird. And then there will be a reader's note in the margin saying, no, actually, I had tried it and it took four weeks. And the next one will say, no, actually, you need to go back to three lines earlier and it doesn't quite work like that. So you have those voices, those, those conversations in the margins, which were held by people who haven't left their names or anything other than the notes they've given us. So that's the interesting bit about it. Do you ever try out any of the recipes for yourself? I personally don't, but there are people who reconstruct historical recipes, and that's really interesting. I'm glad that they are doing that, because I can match up my work to that. What I'm actually looking at at the moment is images and manuscripts, because that is that kind of nonverbal communication of certain concepts that gives me more evidence for what people were actually thinking while they were trying those recipes. So anything from sketches of apparatus to very beautiful, very colourful depictions of those metaphors I mentioned earlier. And again, they change from manu one manuscript to the next. So the images tell you what is between the lines of the texts, more or less. So all these clever people were spending a lot of time and energy looking for this philosopher's stone. And I mean, they didn't actually find it. But were there any great discoveries that came out of that? Great discoveries is a debatable term, but 
alchemists developed quite a lot of skills which were very useful for science and for craft during that time and after. One of those materials which is very closely connected to alchemical skills is glass or porcelain. And there's a big history which has yet to be written, but working with those kinds of materials very important. Working with materials in fire, which is very difficult and dangerous, and you really want to make sure that things don't melt. Um, there's a lot of skill that went into that. Distilling and fermentation, which both have overlaps with food and with making alcohol and bread and everything like that. There were a lot of discoveries there. And then just to dig up one of those figures who always pops up in the history of alchemy, Paracelsus, we are kind of indebted in our history of medicine to Paracelsus because he introduced the use of alchemical materials and methods to the making of medicines, remedies. As well as the researchers trying their hand at comedy, at this Bright Club, A.F. Harrell joined us to supply his very individual brand of poetry. Uh, welcome. What I'm going to do um, for the next uh, 14 minutes and 35 seconds uh, is, is say poems at you. That's, that's basically it. Um, and I'm going to begin with the first poem uh, and move on from there, see how it goes. Um, so, so let, let's start with that. Uh, it was for his vasectomy that Uncle Quentin went in. But due to unfortunate cuts in the hospital, he lost it all. Um, so um, that's, uh, that's the only political poem I'm doing tonight. <laughs> the, the, the rest is all going to be a, l a little bit lighter uh, than that. Um, I, I'm not as, as in, in, intelligent, I'm not as recent, I, I haven't, I, I, I've not got a specialist subject. You, you've met people this evening who have specialist subject. He, so you've met lots of people who know a lot about very few things. Um, I, 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 I know a, a, an awful little amount about a hell of a lot of things. Um, and I, I've, I've, I've brought 30, uh, or 34 uh, possible pieces here, um, and I've numbered them, 1 to 34, and that way we can just have a sort of stochastic enterprise uh, here and find out. Uh, so, young, young lady who, who's smiling uh, there, I, I might as well go with the ones who are enjoying it. Uh, young, young lady there, would you pick a number between 1 and 34 for me? 28, thank you, that's quite near the end uh, here. Um, they're, they're not, they don't get more dramatic as the numbers go on, they just, they just get... Uh, slightly, oh, oh, this this poem is brand new. Uh, I've never, I've, n I haven't even read this myself. Um, this, this is entire, this is this is entirely experimental, and 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 to be fair, I've not been writing good stuff recently. Um, the 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 old the old classics, fantastic, but this uh, this is uh, this is called Dave. Thursday. It's quite dramatic, the opening there, isn't it? It's quite dramatic. I kind of ruined the flow, so I'm going to go, 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 <laughs> go start again, sorry. Uh, Dave. Thursday. A man knocked at the door and asked if Dave was home. I said, I don't know. Where does he live? 
I'll go and check for you. The man apologized, said he had the wrong house, went to his car, drove away. Friday came. He didn't knock again. That had been our one and only ever meeting. But, like Robert Plant, it made me wonder. <laughs> now, whenever I pass a house with a door, I have to stop myself knocking. Does Dave live there? Is he home? Who's Dave? You seem to go all right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, somebody, uh, oh, oh uh, my, my young lady friend, uh, not my young lady friend, that's, that's, that's a bit presumptive. Um, madam, number, 1 to 34, inclusive, exclusive of 19 or 28. 14, okay, we like the teens, okay, here we go. Uh, 12, 12's a long one, look at that. Uh, 13, 14, okay, okay. Um, I do, uh, do children's literature, do children's poetry, I visit primary schools quite a lot. Um, I go in, I do poetry workshops and things with them. And one of the things uh, is I, I have my CRB, my DBS check uh, these days to prove that I've got a piece of paper, to prove that I'm safe uh, to be around these children. What I've noticed over many years of doing that sort of work is that none of these children have a certificate to say that they're safe to be around. <laughs> and, and I can tell whether I'm in a primary school or an infant school with my eyes shut. I, uh, in a, a primary school, lots of kids come up to me and say, Ashley, can we touch your beard? In an infant school, lots of kids come up to me and touch my beard. And that's, <laughs> that's the way to uh, tell the difference. And that, I, I guess that, that fed into this. This is called Abigail. Uh, if there's anyone called Abigail in tonight, this is dedicated to you. <laughs> the policeman called on Abigail's parents shortly after her eighth birthday. He explained how they'd had several complaints from men walking in the vicinity of Abigail's school, who had each been approached by a little girl matching her description who demanded that they share their sweets, <laughs> even though they'd bought them for their own personal enjoyment. If they'd planned on sharing them, they all said, they would have bought more in the first place. Worse than this, however, was the policeman's next report. One gentleman had been driving home from the nearby pedigree pet shop with a precious it's very poppy this poem uh, with a precious litter of pedigree puppies when a little girl climbed into his car and demanded in no uncertain terms to look at his recently acquired pets. Naturally, he tried to be polite, explaining that the traffic lights were about to change and he'd have to drive off and he wanted to go home. And also the puppies were rather shy, being so young, and they should be left in peace for the moment. Please. When Abigail had pressed her hand on his knee, smiled big cow eyes and whined, Oh, please, sir, just a little peek and one quick stroke, the gentleman attempted to escape and was knocked down by a passing ice cream van. <laughs> the pedigree puppies were unharmed. The policeman asked Abigail's parents if they maybe couldn't control their daughter better, and they considered cancelling her assertiveness classes. <laughs> 
if she would let them. Back to the researchers now, and Ashley Wilson took to the stage to discuss the various heroines of late 19th and early 20th century literature. So, uh, like she said, my name is Ashley Wilson, and I also am in the dreaded humanities, or, well, I prefer them. I study children's literature. And so when I tell people that, I usually get reactions such as, oh, I read books as a child. And I'm like, so did I. Um, um, but occasionally people think to ask further, what, what, what is it that I research? And so the official answer is, I look at Christianity and spirituality in late 19th and early 20th century girls' books, specifically Pollyanna and Anne of Green Gables. And just like you all look now, that's how they look. Sometimes I have people step away just in case I'm going to convert them, um, which is not the case (laughs) at all. Um, So one of the areas of research that I usually try to tell them about if they're brave enough to continue asking, there are, you know, the people who back away, I usually just change the subject to the weather because we're in Britain. But the people who are brave enough to continue asking, I tell them about one of my chapters, which is on the temporarily disabled child. What does this have to do, do you say, with these books? Well, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there are a whole bunch of girls who interact with scissors in a very unfortunate way or um, are hit by a car, um, suffer death because they're afraid they're going to a convent, but it's okay, she comes back to life, Um, and and the like. Oh, one of them falls off a swing. So, you know, it's just kind of, it's all over the place, and then they recover, so it's fine. So it's fine to give your children. You probably read one of these books. So I was trying to think, how would I relate this to an audience? Because, I mean, probably none of you have been temporarily disabled, and if you have, um, okay. Um, (laughs) um, But... A lot of you are, we're in Cambridge, so a lot of you have probably done some sort of grad work or worked on a really long dissertation or have done, think of anything really hard that you've ever done. And we are gonna take one of those online quizzes right now that you have done either when you were 12 or when you were drunk or maybe when you were both. Um, And and, and, you know, you wanna find out what Harry Potter character you are. I mean, raise your hand if you've done that. I've definitely, or my personal favorite, you know, like, what Jane Austen heroine are you, slash what hero does that mean you're going to end up with? Um, So shows you when I do at night by myself. Um, So so we're going to play now. If you are a PhD student or in one of those really difficult times of your life, which temporarily disabled heroine would you be? So let's start with Elsie Dinsmore. So if you are an Elsie Dinsmore, you are a weeper. You cry at all times, and, but you're very pious. And so occasionally someone will come up to you and be like, little girl, person, why are you crying? And it's like, I just have such deep convictions and I'm afraid, and I'm just upset because the Jews killed my savior. So, you know, we all, we all have our issues. Um, Elsie's full of them. But Elsie suffers from deep, deep conviction to the point that she just wants her father to be converted to Christianity. Okay, so you say, how does this relate to my PhD dissertation? Well, if you're an Elsie, 
your uh, supervisor may not really think that you're doing so well. And in fact, you may go to a conference and someone may say, excuse me, this is the most terrible thing I've ever seen. But through your tears, because you're definitely going to weep when it happens, you're going to be like, but I just know that I'm right. I just have, you just have to believe me. And if you're an Elsie, you're going to carry that all the way to your death. And you're going to die. And in that moment, you're finally going to get your voice. And everyone around you is going to be like, actually, if that didn't make sense, her argument was totally true. And then you'll race back to life and be like, I knew it. <laughs> so if you're an Elsie, good luck with that. Um, maybe you're a Pollyanna. Now, if you're a Pollyanna in advance, I'm sorry. Um, Pollyanna is incredibly optimistic. Now, I don't know if you've heard about her GLAD game. Pollyanna's GLAD game started because she was a poor missionary child living out west in America, and she really wanted some dolls, and so they sent away asking for it, and instead she got crutches, and her dad said what you would say to a little girl who really wanted a doll and instead got crutches, and he said, Pollyanna, you can be glad that you don't need the crutches. So this is where this glad game originates. And so if you're a Pollyanna, it doesn't matter. Your, your supervisor can send you back your dissertation. It can be in pieces. And you can say, it's OK. I'm glad because next time, when it's not in pieces, I'll remember this time, and I'll be happy. Or you can, you can you go to someone else, a colleague of yours, and they'll be like, oh my god. Um, I just, I just don't even know because everything's just going so terribly. And, you, and in response, you can say, oh, you know what? You can be glad because it's not going terribly for other people. <laughs> if you're a Pollyanna, everybody hates you. <laughs> but it's okay. Even Pollyanna's author hated her to the point that she was hit by a car. <laughs> um, but surprisingly enough, she was still glad because... Her being hit by a car meant that her aunt could finally find true love. I don't know that that was really worth it, but it's, it's but you know she ends up she ends up being able to walk, so all is well. So if you're a Pollyanna, know that through all your optimism, you will submit a dissertation. You will probably just lose all of your friends in the process. <laughs> now there's another option. Maybe you are an Emily. Now Emily's new moon is the latest of all of these heroines. She was written in the 20s. And um, if you're an Emily, from the time you came out of the womb, basically, you believed that your PhD dissertation, academia, was your destiny. And it doesn't matter that your dad died. It doesn't matter that your maiden aunt thinks that writing is terrible. It does not matter any of that, any of those obstacles. You will write on the back of envelopes if you need to. But what does matter is that one friend who you think is very wise but is actually very jealous of you. And you give them your dissertation, and you say, I have created this first draft. It would mean so much if you would read it for me. And they take it away, and they come back, and they're like, actually, that was terrible. And you, not being discerning to the fact that they're speaking out of jealousy, get so upset that you delete the draft, get rid of all, all the Dropbox, all of the backup, all the hard drive, all the emails, it's gone. And in your distress, 
you run out of your room and trip over a basket and fall down the stairs and have scissors through your foot and you almost have it amputated but it's totally okay but then it's not and you have such low self-esteem that you end up getting engaged to the friend who made you delete the dissertation to begin with and you don't know what to do but then you have a moment of second sight and you rescue your real true love and then your aunt becomes crippled and then you realize that actually writing was a good idea and you come at your dissertation from a different angle and it gets published and you're fine. So if you're an Emily, it's going to be fine. Don't marry him. Um, or the last option is maybe you, like me, are a Katie. Um, Katie goes about her dissertation with a lot of good ideas no concrete way of actually implementing it. And so, you know, it's going to be fine. And, and she's told, you know, don't do this. Don't go swing on that swing. It's just not going to work out for you. But you know what? She's going to do it anyway. And you swing on the swing, and then you fall off, and then you get spine fever, and no one knows what that really is. <laughs> but it lasts for four years. <laughs> um... <laughs> During that time, you're in a lot of pain, but your supervisor comes in the form of Cousin Helen. If you remember what Katie did, Cousin Helen is the perfect invalid. Like, ah, the clouds part and the, and the light shines on her when she enters the room. And Cousin Helen says, slash your supervisor says, it's going to be fine. In the school of pain, you can learn a lot, like how to write a great dissertation. And... Um, that's basically what my supervisor said to me. She was like, it's going to be fine. Just work through it. And I was like, okay. Um, so if you're in Katie, no, it will be okay. Uh, I'm living proof. <laughs> um, so basically, the point of all of these is that doing a PhD is fucking hard. But the end, they all got their dissertations slash voices heard, except, you know, then they had to be women in late 19th, early 20th century. But um, you don't have to do that. <laughs> so thank you very much. I asked Ashley to tell me in a bit more detail what her PhD was actually about. It kind of ranges. So for two of my chapters, I'm looking at how these books relate to Christianity and spirituality in the real world. But then in the other chapter, I look at these girls who are temporarily disabled and how that becomes a metaphor for them gaining their voice within kind of a Christian and feminist context. So can you give me any examples of how these books related to, to life at the time they were written? Yes, actually. So Pollyanna was written during a time that was difficult in American Christianity. It was written in 1913. And at this time, Darwinism had happened and evolution, and people were starting to read the Bible literally. And so no one knew whether or not to take Christianity at its word, basically. And so Christians kind of came together and decided what they could get behind was the fact that Jesus had taught that you should feed the hungry and clothe the naked and, you know, take care of those who are in need. So the social gospel movement kind of 
developed from there, where people were very focused on giving social justice in their backyards. Simultaneously to this, there was the missionary movement, which meant that a lot of um, North American Protestants were going to third world countries and trying to convert them to Christianity. And there was a lot of focus on, especially with women, giving money and charity basically out there, putting their efforts in that direction. Pollyanna kind of sits in between this, which is unexpected for a children's book that's known to be so saccharine. But she sits in between this and is really focused on the local person and has many examples of instead of focusing in your in other countries that you should instead focus in your own backyard. It ends up being this local missionary figure in the book. And do you think that was something that the author was trying to portray when they were writing it? Or do you think it just sort of happened because of what was going on at the time? I'm more inclined to say that it just kind of happened. Very little is known about Eleanor Porter, the author of Pollyanna, and it doesn't really creep up too much in her other books. So I don't know if it was just something that she had been exposed to or had been thinking of, or if it just she just happened upon it. And what are some of the other books you look at? I researched Anne of Green Gables, but also with the temporarily disabled child, I look at Elsie Dinsmore, What Katie Did, and Emily of New Moon and the Emily series as a whole. So tell me about this, this temporary disablement. So in these books, these very pious girls end up experiencing, for one reason or another, either an illness or an injury. That means that they have to be stuck in bed, basically. And it's at that time that these children are listened to by the adults in their lives. So up until this point, Pollyanna is a great example. So Pollyanna plays the glad game all the time and has converted basically her whole town to playing the glad game. And so with Pollyanna's bed stage, when she is hit by a car and injured, it's only then that her aunt finally begins to play the glad game. So finally, an adult in Pollyanna's life takes her seriously. So does this reflect what would have happened in that time period anyway? Were a lot of children, I guess, would have been getting ill and we didn't have quite such good treatment. So maybe a lot of children were bedridden like that. Do you think that was the case? Well, while it's definitely true we didn't have the medical or they didn't have the medical access that we do, a lot of their healings end up being quite miraculous. They just one day are, quote unquote, able to walk again. Or in Elsie's case, she actually raises from the dead. So I think it's less to do with reflecting what's happening medically or medicinally and more proving the point that these children have either learned a certain lesson or what I argue that the adults around them have learned the lesson that the child has to speak. So it's a kind of point of transformation in their lives. Absolutely. That's absolutely what it is. <laughs> so is there anything in your research that sort of goes against what people have thought beforehand reading these books? Absolutely. There's kind of a tradition in the fact that these girls are able to be boisterous and lively and wander the towns up until their, their bed stage, up until their disablement. Um, and then afterwards, a lot of times they end up becoming more subdued. And so in a lot of criticism, particularly feminist criticism, there's this critique that says that this bed stage is actually meant to kind of subdue the girl and put her into her place as a woman because a woman was expected to be submissive and quiet um, and usually this is happening around the time of her first menstruation so it's this idea of her what's happening to her physically being shown in the bed stage 
and being laid up until she's finally ready to enter womanhood. So while I recognize that a change does happen, it's undeniable with characters such as Katie, who was quite boisterous and afterwards becomes the perfect mother figure, that there is a subduing going on. I think that they neglect the fact that there's an incredible power that comes with these children's voices finally being heard and the fact that they're young girls whose voices are being heard. But of course, with the subduing of the child, often the adults are being subdued in their own way as well. So not only, and in fact, very rarely, besides Katie, is the child actually transformed. A lot of times when the child's voice is heard, the adult is finally able to to change, like with Pollyanna's aunt. Or in Emily's case, her aunt ends up being the one who's briefly temporarily disabled after Emily is. And it's in that time that she finally starts listening to Emily's stories and starts enjoying them and encouraging Emily to write. Whereas for the first three books, she was against Emily writing falsehoods, quote unquote. So I think that it does, it shifts the power into the child's hands in many ways. I hope you enjoyed this podcast from Cambridge Bright Club with me, Ginny Smith. A huge thanks to Anka Timmerman and Ashley Wilson and all the performers on the night. And I'm going to leave you with these final thoughts from AF Harold. Tune in again next time. Uh, someone from in the corner, in the corner by the stairs over there. Seven, seven, thank you, thank you. That's a nice and efficient this half, aren't we? Just whizzing through them. Uh, seven, okay, here's, here's another poem. <laughs> uh, called All Sorts, here we go. Uh, all sorts of things remind me of you. Medium-sized objects painted dark blue. That tacky sensation from not-quite-dry glue. A marmoset sneezing because of the flu. These sorts of things remind me of you. Envelopes with addresses that ran in the rain. Getting on in the nick of time. The wrong train. That Tupperware box where they keep Einstein's brain. All sorts of things remind me of you. A tree in the forest when no one's around. A sensible circus that's just been declowned. <laughs> that table of Arthur's famously round. <laughs> These sorts of things remind me of you. A song on the wireless I never knew that I knew. A sheep brought up by cows that can only say moo. <laughs> that twitch of the nose girls called Tabitha do. These sorts of things remind me of you, officer. <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you. Um, yes, eight, eight, eight. Oh my goodness, I, I wrote this yesterday. This is a brand new poem. Uh, written especially for Cambridge Bright Club. I'd forgotten about it. Because um, there's lots of... I, I, I didn't know there weren't actually going to be scientists here tonight. I know there's one or two. Uh, but this is for, sci this is for, for actual scientists, because scientists like peer-reviewed uh, things. Uh, but this poem, this poem is an actual uh, peer-reviewed poem. Uh, it's quite short, so don't panic. Here we go. Uh, it's called Peer-Review Poem. South End... Long, Brighton, gone. Wigan, inland. Helsinki, Finland. Um, so, 
So four, four of my favorite peers there.